Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. As we have done on the two preceding evenings, we have given a description of the city in which the church was located. Let's give just a brief description of the city of Pergamos so that we can have a little better understanding as to why the letter was written and the terms that it was written in this particular church. Now keep in mind, there were actual churches by this name. You'll see on that map, there were towns by these names. But we also believe that these were indicated to be sent to all of the churches. And the churches of Asia Minor, these seven and others, circulated these letters. So Pergamos got Ephesians letter and the one to Thyatira and to uh, Smyrna and so on. They were all circulated. And all of these letters have a message to churches today. So that we must keep in our background, in our mind, as we study the letter, and look at what happened to this particular church in this particular city, but it was not unique to one town or to one church, but there were certain aspects of it that, that would deal with the man. We saw that, he fit, that the uh, Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, we saw about this town, that it was perhaps the greatest city of all of Asia Minor, we noticed about the city of Sparta that it probably was the most beautiful. The thing that could be said about Pergamos or Pergamum, depending on the, whether you're using the feminine or the neuter gender of the old word, uh, the, the thing about Pergamos was that it was probably the most famous of all the cities of Asia Minor. It had been a capital city for over 400 years by the time this letter was written. Many of the others were fairly new in their age of prominence. It was a highly cultured city. It had one of the greatest libraries in the world in it. You remember back in those days, they didn't write on paper. They either had uh, papyrus or parchment. in this particular library that was in the town of Pergamos, they had 200 volumes. Uh, I'm sorry, let me say it over. 200,000 volumes. A large library. All uh, on parchment or uh, on papyrus. Both. And I'll explain the difference in a moment between those. It was second in the ancient world only to the great library that was in Alexandria, Egypt. That was the greatest of all ancient libraries. And there was a jealousy between the king of uh, Pergamos and the uh, emperor of Egypt, in that the king of Pergamos, whose name was I always have to stop and figure out how to pronounce it. Eumenes, whose name was Eumenes, he wanted to have the greatest library in the world. But he didn't have it. He was in Alexandria. And so he attempted to get the librarian of the Alexandria library to come to Pergamos. The librarian there was named Aristophanes. 
which maybe doesn't mean anything to you, but I simply tell you that in order for you to know he was a, a real person. So he offered Aristophanes a, a tempting offer to come to Pergamos and be the, the librarian. Well, this angered uh, Ptolemy, who was the emperor of Egypt, and so he simply put the librarian, Aristophanes, in jail. So he couldn't go anywhere. And then he stopped the export or of, of all the papyrus upon which writing took place from leaving Egypt. Papyrus was made out of the pulp of the reeds that grew along the Nile River. That was the source of the materials out of which they made uh, the papyrus, and that's where we get our word paper, is from that word. And so in order to really put a print upon the library in, in Pergamus, he refused to allow any of this to be exported out of the country. So this created a tremendous burden for Pergamus. On what were they going to write their books to put in their library? And so they had to resort to inventing something. And so they discovered that they could take animal skins and fix them in a certain way and write upon them, and it was from animal skins that we get parchment. And so it was then that parchment came into being, and the library went on and, and developed. All right, this is a little bit of the background of, of this particular city. And the Lord writes to them, and he says that he recognizes that they're living where Satan's seat is. That is important for us to stop a moment and see what did he mean by calling it Satan's seat. Well, we can certainly think that that would infer that this is where Satan ruled. If you would go back in time a bit, back to Babylon, you would discover in history, and even in some study of the scriptures, that idolatry, the worship of pagan idols, began in Babylon under the influence of a character in history called Nimrod. You've heard his name before. It was in Babylon that Satan established his seat of government. But Babylon fell. Satan had a particular location where, from which he moved in the ancient world. Babylon fell and it was no longer a mighty power. And he moved his seat to the town of Pergamos. And Satan's seat was really there. This was his stronghold his place of dominance, from which he could influence the entire world. So you see, Pergamos really had an important place in history, and a certainly important for the church. And the Lord says, I know this is where Satan's seat is. Now the question immediately comes to your mind, maybe, as it did to mine, where is Satan's seat today? What town does he have as his headquarters? And if you want to search and search and search, you probably will have to come up with the answer that I came up with. He has diversified. There is no one place that Satan's seat is any longer located. He has moved out with his unholy angels into the entire world, and there's a little bit of Satan wherever you might find anybody, in every town, in every city. Satan's seat is there. For he has learned that he must influence by diversification, getting out all over to wherever people are. So the Lord is identifying this church as actually dwelling in the same place where Satan has his headquarters. 
And so we can say, Caroline and District today, that our churches, not just only this church, but every other church, every denomination, has a, well, that is a church, will discover that it is dwelling, it has its, its place of worship in the very presence of Satan's power. He is not going to let us have a church unless he is trying to destroy it. And Satan will attempt every way he can to destroy this church if he can possibly do it. And every other church that you can ever name. He will destroy it from outside or he will destroy it from inside if he possibly can. An individual church can succumb. So the Lord knows that they are in the midst of the place of Satan's where Satan's seat is. That's one thing that we can notice about this. A couple other things. Let me let me know quickly in passing. The the chief god, the pagan god that was prominent in this city was Asclepius. A S C L E P I O S. I hope that's pronounced right. I have trouble with these old names. He was considered the god of healing. People flocked to the city of Pergamos from all over the world because it had the promise of bringing physical healing to the body. Satan will do that uh, wherever he can. He will hit the person at his point of weakness. And our physical weaknesses, our illnesses, become a make us vulnerable, and he will try to deal with us through that. So, here... Uh, the church was in the midst of the God of healing and people were flocking not to the church but to that which Satan promised. He promised them healing. I think we uh, can take a little bit of caution here about faith healing and we're not getting into that stuff. Alright. The Latin that was used in referring to Asclepius was a word on the end, Sater, S-A-T-E-R, Sater, or a long A and a long E. And, uh, and it meant that Asclepius is Savior. Can you see the parallel Sater and Savior? You see the, the similarity. So, what the people of Pergamos were doing was declaring that pagan God who had a temple in the city as the Savior. And here was the Christian church coming along and saying, it is not that pagan God, it is Jesus Christ that is Savior. And so there was a conflict. One was saying one was Savior and one was saying the other. The emblem of the pagan God was the serpent. That's where even doctors today on their emblems have the, the serpent comes all the way back to this. That was a medieval emblem that was used. Also, we can uh, recognize that in this church it was the center of Caesar worship. We've talked about Caesar worship before. And it was prominent in Pergamos as it was in, in, in Ephesus and also in uh, Smyrna. They certainly were attempting to make Caesar the Lord. All right. This town had one other prominent thing that fits well into this picture. And that is the leaders of this town were given the right of the power of life and death. The Roman government gave them that. The emperor of uh, this city, 
was determined by his own decree whether you lived or died. And if he said you must die, you died, and there was no court to overrule, no Supreme Court deal. And so they, he had the right of the sword. Eustratii was, was the Latin, which means the right of the sword. And Jesus comes along and says to John, you write to that church and tell them that I am the one that has the two-edged sword. I cut deeper. I cut both ways. I am more powerful and more supreme than Eusclatii, those who have the power of the sword. What a tremendous claim this is. Uh, back to the church of Smyrna, he declared himself to be the first and the last and better and that is alive. Back in the church of Ephesus, he said that he was the one that holds the church in his hand and holds the pastor in his hand and walks amongst the candlesticks which represented the church. Here he says that he is the one that has the final power, a two-edged sword, more powerful than those who simply have the right to serve. All right, remember last week, we talked about Diocletian, who was the emperor of... Uh, Smyrna, causing as many as five million Christians to be burned at the stake and turned into the lion's dens and all of those things. A very, very wicked emperor with five million martyrs. But in the midst of all those martyrs, the church was growing. People were believing in Jesus Christ in record numbers. You killed five million, there were maybe 15, 20 million being saved. The numbers were increasing. Persecution brought people to a realization as to who God is and, and what they ought to do in relationship to him. Now, immediately following Diocletian comes an emperor that you have heard of. His name was Constantine. Constantine was an entirely different character. He had a vision that he saw a fiery cross, and he heard these words in this cross on earth. He believed, and this is in history, you can check it out if you want, he believed that God was telling him to accept the faith of the Christian church, and he would conquer the world by the sign of the cross. So he declared himself the defender and the protector of the faith. He issued an edict that Christians no longer would be persecuted, but now they would be tolerated. They would be accepted. Matter of fact, he even used government funds to, to support the church. This is church state now. Pagan temples were no longer allowed to worship pagan gods. The church took over the temples. Whereas the uh, pagan worshippers used to come down the street and ravage the Christians, now it was reversed and the Christians went in and threw out all the pagan worshippers out of the world. We're taking over your temple. They had their idols set up in there. Now here becomes a problem. They didn't throw the idols out. They took the name plate off the idol and they put another name plate on it and left the idol standing. Can you begin to see what's happening? They began within the Christian church to adopt pagan practices. 
Here begins the, a tragedy of the church. What could have been a blessing has now become a curse. They lost their fire of evangelism. There were no longer millions of people being saved. It was fashionable and nice to be a Christian and go to church. No longer did you have to fear uh, to, to believe. So they began to surround themselves within the church with mystery. Suddenly things were mysterious. The uh, priests and the nuns began to practice celibacy. They would not marry. There's nothing in the scripture that says a priest or a nun or anybody is supposed to remain celibate without marriage. That was a pagan practice. The church adopted the pagan practice of celibacy. You see that? Let me say a few other things that began to happen because of the change in the popularity now of the church. In A.D. 300, they started praying for the dead. We know the dead can't be prayed for, but they started doing that. They began to make the sign of the cross. Bless you, my friend. You've seen that happen, haven't you? Four thirty-one. They began to worship Mary. In AD five hundred, the priests started dressing differently than the people in the congregation. So it began to lift him a little bit higher than the congregation. In five ninety-three, they started preaching the doctrine of purgatory. None of this is in the scripture. In, in the year 600, they started having their services in Latin so nobody could understand. And also in the year 600, they started praying directly to Mary. And you're thinking, all of these things are Catholic things. Yes, they are. But there wasn't a Catholic church yet. There was only one church. It was Christian people. But their order of worship began to be infiltrated by the things that were happening in the pagan buildings where they now had established the churches, and they began to put the two together. And when you start mixing God and the world, you have a weakened mixture of iron and clay. And this is what has happened to the church. Even today, we are weak because we have elected to mix things that don't mix. Pergamum, or Pergamus, means marriage or elevation. What had happened was the church of Pergamus had married the government. We believe in the separation of church and state but they had married the government, and the government of the church became almost inseparable, as it is in some countries today. And so the church took an elevated a position of respect, and when the church became respectable, its spirituality began to decline. I attended the service of the installation of the pastor here around the Canal Valley, I'll not say what, what town or what church, not too many months back, 
And one of the common things that happens in today's churches when, an instant, when a pastor is installed as the, as the new pastor of the church, they invite, of course, our denominational people are there and various other churches in the community, but the mayor is usually invited. And in this particular case, I could see that the mayor was very uncomfortable being behind the pulpit to welcome the Baptist pastor into that town. Nobody said whether he was Christian or not, and I began to wonder in my mind just what he was. He had a terrible time saying the right words. And I could see he was hesitating to make sure he didn't get some little words in there that ought not be spoken from the pulpit of a Baptist church. I tell you, I believe this is marrying the world of the church. It has settled down to respectability. There ought not be someone from the government standing behind the pulpit welcoming a pastor into the community, for we are absolutely separated. Now, if he were a Christian man and were speaking from a Christian man's standpoint as an individual or as a church, that's different. You've got to watch who you put behind your pulpit. We don't necessarily need to be respectable to the community. We need to be right with God. And as I told you last Sunday, or, well, Wednesday night, I guess it was, in, in our discussion, shortly after they quit preaching about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and it didn't come back into prominence in our preaching until 1700s in this country before the prominence of the preaching of the second coming were returned. They lost their enthusiasm for souls being saved. They lost their evangelistic effort. They became indifferent and worldly. And this is the problem even of the church today. We have never overcome that. We're overcoming her own. He says, I know where you live. You live in the midst of where Satan's seat is. And we've discussed that. Generally speaking, we think of Christians as sojourners. We don't live here. Our, our home is somewhere else, but leave that alone for, for this evening. There is a principle, however, that I think we need to observe here. Sometimes we feel that if we uh, cannot have things our way, we'll escape and get out of it. For the Christian, there is no escape. We must conquer Jesus is saying to them, I know you live in the seat of Satan. That's okay. Stay there. Don't think about jumping up and running somewhere else. Now, I'm going to say some pretty strong things here. I hope you listen to me. I want to say three things real quick on this very subject. When things get tough, it is not the purpose of a Christian to jump up and run. This is what happens in home and why there are so many divorces in today's society for young people go into marriage with the idea that doesn't work, there's an easy way out. Now, folks, it may end up that way, and there are times when it does, in spite of what people can do. But we are not to start into something with the idea that we can easily get out of it if it doesn't work. If we're going to get married, we're going to have to do something about trying to make it work, with all our heart, although there are times that I would say certainly that that may not work. The same thing with a job. Many people jump jobs all the time 
not because they want a better job, but because they can't tolerate it anymore there. Well, the thing I really want to know, this same thing happens in our churches all the time. I have seen it in all these years that I've been preaching. Many people who can't stand the fire do get out of the kitchen. If I can quote Terry S. Truman, <laughs> some of you will remember that that was his famous thing. Now, I earnestly believe it's the job of the Christian to stick. We've got too many people who are not sticking, and they're everywhere in this community, up and down our, our streets and in our towns and in our cities, who have completely vacated the church. And they claim to be Christians. The job of the Christian is to conquer, not to escape. He says, I know where your seat is. Stay there. When Jesus cured the gathering demoniac of, of his mental problem, and he finally was sane and clothed again, the gathering demoniac wanted to go with Jesus on his ministry. And Jesus said to him, no, you stay at home. And you tell the people at home that great things the Lord has done for you. It's time for us to demonstrate at home what the Lord has done for us. And stick there even though Satan may be in the midst of where we live. All right, let's go on. He said, I know you also have in your church those people who, who practice uh, Balaam here. Now, I don't know if you remember Balaam or not. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet. A, the king of Moab came to Balaam, the prophet, and he wanted Balaam to cast a curse upon Israel. And he paid him a sum of money to do it. And Balaam wanted, because he wanted the money, he wanted to really do what Balak wanted and, and condemn Israel so that Moab could get the blessing. But every time he opened his mouth, instead of a, a, a condemnation coming out, a blessing came out. He couldn't do it. The Lord would not allow his mouth to speak condemnation. It was a blessing every time. I, I wish the Lord would do a little more of that. Now, he finally then, in order to succeed in what he wanted to get that money, he told Balak, you just intermingle with the Hebrew people, and you marry, uh, you marry with them, and you water them down. You compromise their position. He went on to say that there was a group of people called the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know anything about this guy called Nicol, and I see well, but he was a fellow who apparently was teaching that we ought to compromise with the world, ought to live peaceably, ought to conform, ought to bring in uh, parts of the way to the world, and intermingle, and intermarriage, and make it a watered-down society, and don't preach anything that disturbs anybody. Just preach a nice, easy gospel. That's what this guy Nikel wanted done. That's what Balaam actually did. He got people to compromise their faith. There are some things, folks, we can compromise because there's nothing in the Scripture that would keep us from doing it. There are some things we cannot compromise, and that's what God's Word, God's Word tells us in black and white. There are some things we must stick to. 
We believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, who was born of the Virgin, who died on the cross for our redemption of sins, who went to the grave, was resurrected, and is coming again. We can't compromise those things. Well, let me pray. Let's look down toward the last where he talks about the bread of heaven, the white square, and the new name. He said those that overcome, that they will be able to eat of the manna. The manna, you remember, was that which the Lord fed his people with over time. They're back in the wilderness. There is a, well, you know, they put the manna in the ark. And it was in the, uh, were carried around the Hebrew people and finally put in the temple in Jerusalem. But right before the temple was destroyed, and the ark had some of this manna in it, the, the uh, story goes, although it's not in scripture, that Jeremiah went in and got the manna and took it out and hid it in Mount Sinai, and that Jesus will discover it again when he returns. But the important thing is that those who overcome will eat of spiritual and we'll sit down at the table with the Lord that's preparing heaven. Now, the white stone. The white stone. He'll give us a white stone, he said, if we overcome. In those olden days, voting on condemnation or uh, freedom of a person who was condemned was done by stones. If you voted for freedom for the individual, acquittal, you put in a white stone if you were on the jury. If you voted for his condemnation, you put in a black stone. Then they carried the stones. A man had run away from home as a young lad under very difficult circumstances, but many, many years away from home, like the prodigal son, and he finally came to himself, and he wanted to go home, but he knew he'd have to be forgiven of his family. He finally wrote his family a letter, and they lived along the railroad track. He said that he was sorry for the way he lived, and he really wanted to have and be a part of the family again. And he said, I'm going to ride it through town on such and such a day on the train. If you will forgive me, I want you to hang, if you will, a white sheet on the line. I'll see that white sheet and know that you have forgiven me, and I'll get off the train. Anxiously, he watched that house as it came into view as the train made its way down the track. And there on the edge of the town, he saw his home. He didn't see a white sheet. He saw the entire line filled with white sheets. The whole front of the house was covered with white sheets. He hadn't been forgiven. He had been forgiven to the uttermost. That's what God has promised to you and me. He has promised us a white stone, every stone white, because we have been forgiven to the uttermost. Another story that we, we might note on the white stone which deals with what is called white days. Back in history, there were societies in order to give a person a day off, they would allow them to draw out stones out of jars. And if you've got a white stone, you've got the day off. If you've got a black stone, you have to work. Also, they offered for each family, there were societies that took a white stone for every good day you had to put a white stone in the jar. If it was a bad day, you put in a black stone. 
And when your life was over, your family pulled out the stones and counted the white ones and the black ones and separated them. And then they said, you had a good life if you had more white stones and black, or you had a terrible life if you had more black stones and white. Jesus is saying, when they pull out your jar, they're going to all be white because I've cleansed all the black stones in the blood of Jesus. Can you see the beauty of that? The, the words white and the words new are revelation words. They talk about something marvelous. White means glistening white. New means something that there has never been before. And he said, in that white stone, I'll give you a new name. And we've preached about the new name before, and I'm not going to do it again this evening. But no one else has it. It's yours. Written in the white stone, put there by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you have the white stone? Is the clothesline outside your home covered in white sheets? Because the Lord has given you to the utmost. If you don't think you'll find white sheets hanging on that line, when you ride down that old railroad track on your way to your final destination, you can. If you don't think the stones in your time are white, they can be made white by having them cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. What's your situation now? Shall we pray? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at James sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.